The old pilots playing tales. The wave scrapers. It's May 1942, and America has joined the Second World War, committing many of its combat resources to campaigns around the world. On the east coast of America, vital shipping bound for Allied ports, such as those in Britain, are being sunk by German submarines. The German U-boat commanders were bold, and they had started to operate even as close as a few hundred yards off the coast, where it was easier to locate the merchantmen before they became lost in the vast Atlantic Ocean. Tankers and cargo vessels were being sunk at a rate of two a day, but between Halifax and Florida there was 1,200 miles of coast for the Navy to patrol, and they were spread way too thin. Facing the efficient and deadly U-boats were five old Eagle boats, three ocean-going yachts, less than a dozen Coast Guard ships, a few blimps and a handful of aircraft. Any merchantman who got past Cape Hatteras afloat considered himself lucky. The losses had been so terrible that the figures were being withheld from the public and for a few humiliating weeks... All coastal vessels were ordered to stay in harbour until convoys could be organised. Enemy agents rubbed shoulders with sailors in waterfront bars and the advice drummed into people of war-torn Britain that loose lips sink ships had yet to be taken fully on board in the States. The U-boat commanders had become brazenly impudent and they sank a ship in the mouth of the Connecticut River and two more in the St. Lawrence. They crept into the lower Mississippi to threaten shipping leaving New Orleans and reserving their torpedoes for more difficult prey, they often surfaced and used their four-inch guns which were more than a match for the lightly armed U.S. patrol boats. So confident were the U-boat crews that they surfaced in daylight to charge batteries and even hung out their washing while sunbathing on decks. There were, however, aircraft airborne, and some were armed. Johnny Haggins and Wyatt Farr were flying a Grummond Widgeon, and keeping a close eye on the surface of the ocean, their diligence was finally rewarded. They had been shadowing the dim underwater shape of a submerged U-boat for hours when, at last, the submarine came up to periscope's depth. With a clear target, they ran in and dropped the two depth charges they carried, pulling up to avoid the plumes of water that shot up from the surface. They circled back around, but the only sign that they could find of the U-boat was debris and an oil slick on the surface, which seemed to show a kill. The remarkable thing about the mission that Haggins and Wyant were flying was that it wasn't a military mission, and they were civilians, for they were members of the Civil Air Patrol. Let's go back a bit to the 18th of September 1892 and the arrival of Gil Rob Wilson into the world. Born to the Reverend Gil Irwin Wilson and his wife Amanda Robb, Gil Robb grew up motivated by youthful idealism and a deep sense of responsibility. When the First World War broke out, he travelled to France to assist in the war effort. 
Gill initially became an ambulance driver, but then became a member of the Lafayette Flying Corps, serving the French Escadrille 117, 66 and 163D squadrons. After the Great War, he returned home and followed his father's vocation, attending a seminary and becoming a pastor of the Presbyterian Church. It was after the tragic death of his wife and second child that he lost the use of his voice, and with his doctors advocating complete silence to hasten his recovery, he sadly left his work in the church behind him. The Presbyterian Church's loss was a gain, though, for the world of aviation, as Gill became the Director of Aeronautics for New Jersey, where, amongst other things, he oversaw the Board of Inquiry into the Hindenburg airship disaster, and in his new position he was able to promote and develop aviation in the United States. It was Gil Rob Wilson who first imagined the uses that the growing band of aviation enthusiasts could be put to, and it was he who saw that dream become a reality. He had taken note of Germany's reaction to the start of hostilities and the grounding of all their civil pilots, and he was worried that if America was drawn into the war, a similar thing might happen in the U.S., at the start of the war, there were more than 128,000 licensed private pilots in the States, flying around 25,000 light aircraft, maintained by 14,000 mechanics from around 2,500 airfields. By now the editor of Flying Magazine, Gill wrote that, if properly organized, private aviation could be a valuable national asset relieving military pilots from some of the burdensome liaison, light transportation and reconnaissance work. With the enthusiastic backing of General Henry Arnold and the Civil Aeronautics Authority, New Jersey established a civil defence service and following its success, other states followed suit. A previous mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, a former bomber pilot from the Great War and by then the director of the Office of Civil Defense, signed the order creating the Civil Air Patrol on the 1st of December 1941, only six days before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Gill was given only 90 days to prove that his ideas could be made into reality, but with the enthusiastic and financial support of the oil companies, whose valuable tankers lay burning along the coast, he set to. The idea of civil assistance had been growing in the background, and once news of the tides washing up charred corpses onto the oil-soaked beaches of America became public, and official backing was obtained, enthusiastic volunteers came forward, and the organization rapidly blossomed. Bases in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Rehoboth, Delaware and West Palm Beach soon opened to cover the known hotspots of enemy shipping attacks known as the graveyards, where sinkings were almost a daily occurrence. The call came for the best qualified civilian pilots in the country to come, and with their own aircraft, come they did. They not only bought their own skills, but arrived with radios, spare parts, vehicles, anything that might help 
the budding organization. Most early arrivals were Easterners, but the ones who came later were from up and down the country, from 45 different states. Amongst them were barnstormers, lawyers, bus drivers, manufacturers, mechanics, doctors and shoe clerks. Men like Tom Easterman, a wealthy Manhattan broker, shared assignments with Ben Berger, a Denver bakery truck driver. Many were women, who not only shared work as typists, radio operators and plotters, but were pilots as well. The call went out for airworthy aircraft of 90 horsepower or more to be put into action. Fairchilds, Beechcraft, Stinsons, Wackos and heavier aircraft arrived with the promise of hourly rates covering out-of-pocket expenses and appreciation. There was a concern that should the Civil Air Patrol crews be captured by the German military, they might be shot since they wouldn't be covered by the Geneva Convention. So the War and State Departments ensured that the organisation became known to foreign governments. The Army agreed to cover the flights under official orders and the letters US became part of the official emblem. There was a dearth of experience when it came to flying long patrols over water, but undaunted, Hugh Sharp set off on the first coastal patrol on March 5, 1942. We had never flown across anything wider than the Delaware River, and we were scared stiff, Sharp commented later. A few days later, the first flight out of Atlantic City set off, and Wyant Farr, a New York cardboard manufacturer, in a bright yellow Fairchild, with nothing but an inflated inner tube in the back should they ditch. Fifteen minutes out, they saw the floundering hulk of a torpedoed tanker, with a few surviving men waving weakly from the oil-stained waters below. Reporting the survivor's position, a Coast Guard cutter soon came speeding out. Only a few days later, the fledgling organisation found the enemy. Two aircraft out of Rehoboth surprised a U-boat about to fire a torpedo into the side of a tanker near the shoals off Cape May. At first they thought the submarine was another ship floundering with its decks awash, but when they realised what it was, the unarmed aircraft dived down and buzzed the submarine. The U-boat commander crash-dived his vessel, and it disappeared. The Civil Air Patrol was proving its worth. Initially they were limited to patrols and their only weapon was the aircraft's radio with its ability to call in support. But frequently armed military aircraft or surface ships arrived too late to attack. On one occasion the sight of a CAP patrol caused a submarine to dive onto a sandbar where it became stuck in plain sight. For more than half an hour, the aircraft circled the stranded U-boat, but before the bombers arrived, it had pulled itself free and had disappeared into deep water. After that, the orders came for the CAP aircraft to be fitted with bomb racks, so that they might carry small bombs or even death charges. So it was that Johnny Haggins and Wyant Farr, flying the CAP Grumman Widgeon, were able to attack their submarine. However, despite the evidence of oil and debris that they saw, 
Sadly, subsequent German records show no U-boat was lost on that day. The coastal patrol stood down on August 31, 1943, by which time both the navies and the Army Air Force's anti-submarine forces had grown large enough to handle the mission. During the near 18-month period, CAP had flown 86,685 overwater sorties, spotted and reported 91 merchant vessels and 363 survivors in distress. They reported 173 U-boat positions and dropped 82 bombs on 57 of those subs. In the process, it sadly lost 90 aircraft and 26 crew members to accidents. After the war, 824 Coastal Patrol pilots and observers received air medals, and Edmund Edwards and Hugh Sharp were each awarded a second air medal with V Defence for Valour for their rescue of a CAP pilot who had ditched at sea. However, the deterrent value of the Civil Air Patrol was obvious, and their list of duties grew and grew. Now with a formal rank structure and a uniform, members of the CAP were tasked with carrying cargo, conducting border patrols, towing targets for gunnery practice, searchlight tracking missions, carrying couriers, flying blood to hospitals, monitoring forest fires, conducting mock raids to test blackout procedures and air raid warnings. The organisation also ensured that non-flyers could perform useful duties to help in the war effort. Their personnel guarded airfields, patrolled power lines and waterways, guarding against saboteurs. They also helped the Red Cross and others during natural disasters, flying in help and evacuating survivors. It also started a vital and long-lasting duty, indeed one of its most important missions, pilot training. As early as 1942, they were recruiting and training Civil Air Pilot Cadets to assist with the administration of the organisation and to be trained towards becoming fully-fledged licensed pilots. Within six months of starting, the CAP had over 20,000 cadets, many of whom would go on to become military pilots. On April 23, 1943, a presidential executive order transferred jurisdiction for the Civil Air Patrol from the Office of Civil Defence to the War Department, and CAP became an auxiliary of the Army Air Forces. However, at the conclusion of the war in 1946, Congress passed Public Law 476, incorporating CAP as a non-profit organisation solely of a benevolent character. CAP members would never again participate in direct combat operations. After the US Air Force was established as a separate service in 1947, CAP and USAF officials started meeting to reevaluate their future relationship and on May 26, 1948, Congress passed Public Law 557 establishing CAP as the official civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. Headquartered at Maxwell Air Force Base, the Civil Air Patrol today operates under USAF's Air Education and Training Command 
and units exist all across the United States. It currently has 33,500 senior members and 24,500 cadets and maintains a fleet of 560 light aircraft. In times of emergency, it can also draw from its members 4,300 privately owned aircraft. Although civilians in every legal sense, CAP members can wear modified USAF uniforms with their distinctive insignia. While many senior members, those aged over 21, are pilots, most are not. Anyone can volunteer for a supporting role with speciality training available in operations, communications, logistics and every other function required to run a flying organisation. The CAP also fields ground search and rescue and disaster relief teams that coordinate with federal, state and local responders. The Civil Air Patrol's three primary missions are emergency services, aerospace education and the cadet programs. Today the patrol flies 85% of all inland search and rescue missions under the operational control of the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. Its members typically save the lives of 75 to 100 people a year. CAP also has formal operating agreements with many of the nation's leading disaster relief and humanitarian agencies, including the FAA, National Transport Safety Board, U.S. Coast Guard, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the American Red Cross. Since 1986, CAP air crews have also flown counter-drug missions under the operational control of the Air Force and the U.S. Customs Service. The cadet membership is open to youths between the ages of 12 and 18, and many cadets go on to either the U.S. Air Force Academy or to senior ROTC in college. On May the 30th, 2014, Congress awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, its highest civilian honor, to the World War II members of the Civil Air Patrol. According to Public Law 113-108, the CAP's wartime service was highly unusual and extraordinary due to the unpaid civilian status of its members, the use of privately owned aircraft and personal funds by many of its members, the myriad humanitarian and national missions flown for the nation, and the fact that for 18 months during a time of great need for the United States, the CAP flew combat-related missions in support of military operations off the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico coasts. A fine achievement, I'm sure you'll agree. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.